1976, Steve Jobs started what would become the kingdom of Apple. I'm a, I'm a lover of all things Apple. Uh, he started it in his garage. It was a small two-man show. And by 1983, it had begun to balloon. It was taking off. And Steve Jobs knew that he needed an experienced executive to come in and to direct and run this company. And so he went to a man by the name of John Scully. And John Scully was the president of Pepsi at this point. So he was doing okay financially. And, uh, and Steve said, John, I want you to come and I want you to run Apple. And John Scully thought about it and he was very conflicted and very torn because do I, do I play it safe or do I kind of take the risk with this new, just exploding company? And Steve Jobs, sensing that John Scully was torn, finally says to him, look, John, do you really want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water? Or... Do you want a chance to help change the world? It's pretty compelling, right? Steve Jobs was a, he was a PR genius. But when Jesus Christ of Nazareth pops up onto the scene in the first century, it looks more like a PR nightmare because Jesus doesn't say things like, follow me and you can have it all. Jesus says, follow me and you will lose it all. Even your own life. We're looking at this passage in Matthew chapter 13 today, and we're actually just going to look at verses 44 through 46. It's very short. Jesus gets right to the point. Um, And you'll notice that in these two stories, there are a handful of differences between these two men. One is in a field, and he's not looking for treasure. He's probably just a poor day laborer who's working the field. And he, he stumbles upon this treasure. And in the second, you have this pearl merchant. Pearl merchants were not poor, but they tended to be wealthy in the first century. And he, is not, he doesn't stumble upon this pearl, but he's actually in search of it. Handful of differences, but there is one striking similarity. One striking similarity between these two stories. And this one striking similarity is this. They both sell everything that they have to get the treasure. They both lost it all in order to gain it all. It's the one thing that Jesus repeats in both of these stories, and it is the key to understanding what he's trying to say to us in this passage. Because because really what Jesus is doing is he is making a radical claim about himself. I mean, we read these verses and we think, wow, this is is shocking. These, These two men sell everything that they have for the kingdom. But actually what is so shocking is that Jesus is saying he's the treasure. He is the pearl. Oz Guinness, who's a very well-known Christian author and speaker, tells a story of speaking to a very wealthy group of executives in the city of San Francisco, near where we live. And he said that after, after his talk, uh, a man came up to him, and this is what he said. He said, like many of my friends around here, I've learned a lesson I wish I'd known when I started out. Having it all isn't enough. There's a limit to the successes worth counting and the toys worth accumulating. Business school never gave me a calculus 
for assessing the deeper things of life. The things that we have striven to achieve turned out to be, once achieved, far less than enough. And he concluded by saying this, there must be something more. And what Jesus is saying in these two stories is, he is the something more. He is the treasure. And in fact, you can have, you can have it all. And maybe you do have it all this morning. But if you don't have him at the end of the day, you have nothing. He is the treasure. Your heart will never be fully satisfied until you have him. Do you believe this this morning? I think a lot of us in this room would say, absolutely. That's why I showed up here. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're actually very skeptical that Jesus is the treasure. I mean, imagine if we made a video of your life, a video of my life over the last seven days. You took every, every moment of your life, every, everything that, that others saw and didn't see, every word spoken and unspoken, every thought, every action, every second of your life, and we, we turned it into a movie, and we put it up, we projected it up here for everyone to watch. What would be the story of that movie? What would be the story of that movie for my life? You know, I think if we're honest with ourselves, it would be the story of other treasures and other pearls, other things that vie for our affections. And that is, that is deeply problematic for a Christian. You know why? Because God's greatest goal for your life is not that you would simply obey Jesus. God's greatest goal for your life is that you would come to treasure him. Do you know this? I mean, God's aim for you and God's aim for me is not not that you would simply become this nice, moral, Indian River County resident. God's aim for your life is that you would come to rightly appraise the person of Jesus and you would order every square inch of your life around him. And that's actually the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is how do you get there? You know, how do you come to this place of treasuring Jesus above all else? All of these other things that are vying for your affections this morning. How do you get there? And the good news is that Jesus doesn't simply show up and say, just do it. You know, like Nike Christianity. Just, just, just try harder. Just do it. Just love me a little more. Sacrifice a little more. No, Jesus is far more gracious and he's far more kind and he's far more realistic that, than that. And he knows that if we're ever going to get to the place where he is the something more, then we need more. And I think we find that in these three short verses. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. What does Jesus give to us that we need in order to rightly treasure him? You ready for this? Three things. Number one, he gives us a new, new eyes. New eyes. We need new eyes in order to treasure Jesus. We need a new, uh, a new affection, number two. And number three, we need a new motivation, that's what we're going to look at in the next few moments. New, eye, new eyes, new affection, and new motivation. Number one, we need new eyes in order to treasure Jesus. The Washington Post 
published a story several years ago. They wanted to conduct an experiment, and they took a man by the name of Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell is one of the finest violinists in the world. And they asked him to stand in a Washington, D.C. subway station next to a trash can and to play a $3.5 million violin. And what, here's what they wanted to see. They wanted to see if in the midst of the, the morning rush, in the midst of the hustle and bustle, would people actually stop to notice the beauty? Would they actually stop to watch? Would they actually stop to listen? Three days prior to this, Joshua Bell played a concert, a sold-out concert in Boston, Massachusetts, where tickets went for $100 apiece. They stick him in this subway station. And in 45 minutes, roughly, roughly 1,000 people pass by. Guess how many stopped to watch? Seven. Seven people. Seven people who had eyes to see what 993 others did not. And that's exactly what's happening in these two stories that Jesus tells. You have two men who have eyes to see the extraordinary value of something that others don't. The first is in a field. You know, this is it's an ordinary field. This is, not, this is not some of your beautiful beachfront property here. You know, this is not luxurious, high-end real estate. There are no other, nobody else is lining up to buy this property. It has no apparent value. You can just imagine the rocks and the weeds and the shrubs. It's completely overgrown. Nobody else has the eyes to see the value of this field except this one man. He has eyes to see. And in the second, you have this, this pearl merchant, you know, who, who discovers this pearl of great price. And what you need to know about pearls is that Pearls were constantly passing through the hands of merchants. They're constantly being traded. So, I mean, countless people have laid their eyes on this one pearl. But this, this merchant alone had the eyes to see. He alone had the eyes to see the extraordinary value of this pearl. To understand who Jesus is, it takes eyes to see. You know why? Because Jesus looks so common and he looks so ordinary on the surface. But when you have eyes to see, he becomes the greatest treasure, the greatest treasure that you will ever possess. He, 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 he was born in a forgettable part of the Roman Empire. Uh, in, in a manger, he, he, in poverty. He, 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 uh, as one author puts it, there were probably more animal witnesses to the birth of God than human witnesses. So common, so ordinary, and yet for those who had eyes to see, he was the king of kings. And then he lives his life just encompassing himself with a bunch of nobodies. His, his 12 closest friends cannot get it together. He, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. He hangs out with the lame and the sick and the poor. Those who are on the social fringes. 
He was so common. It's so ordinary, but for those who had eyes to see, he was God in the flesh, walking around with sandals on. And then he, he dies his death on a cross. It, it's a death of shame and torture and utter obscurity. So common, so ordinary. And yet for those who had eyes to see, he was the savior of the world. The prophet Isaiah says it this way. He says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Do you have eyes to see this morning? He's so ordinary. He's so easy to miss. But when you have eyes to see, he becomes the greatest treasure you'll ever discover. Just one very quick point of application on this. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you know what this means? It means that you should not be surprised when people laugh at you and mock you and scorn you and turn their nose up at you for calling yourself a follower of Christ. Something that I encounter all the time at Berkeley, but it's not just exclusive to Berkeley. He is so ordinary. He is so common on the surface, but when you have eyes to see, he becomes the greatest treasure that you'll ever discover. We need new eyes, but second, we need a new affection. Jesus will never be our treasure until we get a new affection. You see, in these two stories of this man in a field and this pearl merchant who discovers this great pearl, Jesus is not simply calling us to rearrange our values and priorities. He's not saying, you know, there's just a few kind of external modifications you need to make about your life. Jesus is calling us to rearrange our affections. He's calling us to rearrange what we love. Because he knows, he knows the operating system of the human heart. That what you and I love serves as the control center of our lives. You know who else knows this? The great philosopher Bob Dylan. What is Bob Dylan saying? He says, you may be rich or poor, you may be blind or lame, but you're gonna serve somebody. And Jesus said it long before Dylan sang about it, so we'll give him the credit. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Every single one of us in this room, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, has something that we love, and it is driving the rest of our lives. And we, we do exactly what both of the men in these two stories do. We wake up every single day and we are giving our lives to something. Our work, our retirement, our, our beauty and our physical appearance, our comfort, our convenience, our reputation, our thirst for power or control or pleasure or security. We wake up every single day of our lives and we give ourselves to something. And here's the thing, we are willing to give up anything and everything to get it. We're willing to give up our integrity. We're willing to give up our time. We're willing to give up our money. For some of us, we're willing to give up our relationships, even our marriages, 
I've been in the ministry now for 11 years, long enough to see that one of the greatest threats to a marriage is when another love, another affection sets in, and that becomes the thing that you are after, and everything else just gets in the way, including your spouse. We all have some treasure. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, there is a golem in all of us. We all look at something and we say, this is my precious and I must have it. And it is undoing us. Um, I have a friend who recently shared with me a story He knows of someone who sleeps with their pet snake. Okay, now this is not a little wormy garden creature. This is a massive boa constrictor. And this this woman, she she actually shares her bed with her snake. She sleeps on one half and the snake sleeps on the other half. And uh, it had been several weeks and the snake was not eating, literally had not downed a single crumb. And so she thought, you know what? snake is sick. Need to take the snake to the vet. So she goes to the vet. It takes the vet all but a second to look at her and say, ma'am, whenever a snake is about to eat a really large prey, it stops eating in order to make room. Now, what's the point? The point is, never get in bed with a snake. If you hear nothing else that I say this morning... Never get in bed with a snake. The point is, the point is the irony, really the tragedy of our other loves is that while we think we have them, they actually have us. While we think that we possess and control them, they actually possess and control us. So here's the question for you this morning. What has you by the heart? Do you know? It's something. And, you know, here's the thing. It's so subtle. It's so subtle because it's not necessarily something horrible. <laughs> I mean, that's the nature of idolatry. It's not bad things. It's, it's good things that become ultimate things. Good things that become ultimate things and therefore feel impossible to liquidate for Jesus. What has you by the heart? What has your affections? Jesus will never become precious to you. He will never become your treasure until he becomes your greatest affection, your greatest love. And by the way, this is why you never arrive in Christianity. You know why? Because because nearness to God, spiritual maturity means learning to take constant inventory of your other loves and your other treasures and your other pearls and all of these other things that are vying for your affections that are saying, have me and you have it all. And yet when you get it, it's like Immanuel Kant once said, give a man everything that he wants and in that moment, everything is not everything. Jesus is the only thing that when you have him, you actually have it. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. Uh, 
when you get him, you can never lose him. We need a new affection, a new affection, a greater affection. Last, we need a new motivation, a new motivation. There are a lot of reasons why people follow God. A lot of motivations. Some of us follow God out of a sense of guilt. You know, I'm, I'm such a bad person and I really need to get my life together. And some of us follow God out of a sense of fear. You know, if I don't get my life together, then God is not going to like me very much. Some of us follow God out of a sense of duty. Look at all that God has done for me. You know, I owe him as if we could somehow repay him and buy our way into his kingdom. Maybe you're here this morning and you follow God out of a sense of morality and virtue. You know, I'm a good person, and religion is what church is what good people do. A lot of motivations. There is one motivation that will actually last. There is one motivation that will actually change you. There is one motivation that will actually make God appealing to you. Did you catch this in verse 44? What is it that compels this man in a field? Jesus says, in his joy. In his joy, literally moved by his joy, out of his joy, compelled by his joy, motivated by his joy. Joy is the motivation. You know, you know why joy is the motivation? Because joy is the currency in the kingdom of God. God the, the God of the scriptures is a God of joy. He comes to bring joy. Joy is the motivation. It's always the motivation, and it makes total sense that joy should be our motivation. You know why? Because joy was Jesus's motivation. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 says it this way. He says, consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. I mean, Jesus, hear these words, Jesus endured the cross for joy. Now that's bad math. That doesn't make a lot of sense if you really think about it. What could possibly be joyful about death? Particularly a death that involves shame and mockery and torture and humiliation and ultimately the wrath of God. Jesus had it all. All the glory, all the honor, all the power, all the fame, all the wealth, all the riches, all the security, all the comfort. And yet he lost it all with joy. What could, where is the joy in that? Why did he do this? He sold it all. He had it all and then he sold it all. Why? Because he found his treasure. He found the pearl of great price. You. 
and me. Katie and I, after several months of marriage, uh, one day she looks at me, and, you know, we're several months in, so at this point, the honeymoon stage is over, okay? It's been, she, she's had long enough to realize that this guy right here has some, some serious issues. And, uh, and she looks at me as we're falling asleep one night, and she says, Brent, you are my most favorite person in the whole world. And I was undone. And I'm telling you, I've not forgotten those words, and, and I probably never will. And you see, the question is, why is there such power in words like that? To, to have someone look at you and say those words, what, 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 why, why, why do those, I mean, it's just, it's just captivating. And the answer is because you and I were built to be delighted in. You know, we're, uh, we're Presbyterians. This church is Presbyterian. And Presbyterians tend to be very good in talking about the fall and original sin and human depravity and our, our, our wickedness and our undeservingness before God. And let me just tell you, all of those things are true. But the starting place of the scriptures is not Genesis 3. The starting where everything goes wrong, including you and I, the starting place of the scriptures is Genesis 1 and 2, where God creates man and woman, and then he sings over them. And he delights in them. And you see, what the gospel of grace says to you and I this morning is that the creator of the heavens and the earth looks at you and he says, the honeymoon stage is over. I know, I know your story from beginning to end. Uh, I, I know all of your brokenness, all of your failures, all of the ways that you are not the person that I have made you to be, all of the ways that you fail to love me and you fail to love other people and all of the ways that you are constantly giving yourself to these false treasures and false pearls. But you are my treasure. You are my favorite. This is what the Christian believes. To hear the God of the universe say to you, I delight in you. Now here's the thing. That kind of delight comes at great cost. And if you hear these words of Jesus read in Matthew chapter 13 this morning and you say, wow, it seems like Jesus is asking for a lot, as in everything. You know what you need to know? Jesus gave everything. He gave everything he had to win you back. And in fact, nothing that he had was worth what you mean to him. And that brings us back to the original question, and I'll end here. How do we come to treasure Jesus above all else? 
You see, to the degree that you understand that you are his treasure and he gave up everything to have you, then Jesus becomes your treasure and you will be willing to give up everything to have him. And it won't be out of guilt and it won't be out of fear and it won't be out of duty and it won't even be out of sense of morality, but it will be out of joy. To know that the God of the universe looks at you and delights in you and sings over you and says, you are my treasure. And when you understand that, and when I understand that, you'd be willing to sell everything that you have because in him, we have all that we could ever want. Let's pray. Father, there are so many things that we run and chase after and that we give our lives to that we think will bring us life, but you alone have the words of life. God, thank you that you are gracious and patient and a kind surgeon who is constantly exposing us and cutting out and rooting out the things that we are so sure will lead to joy in life, but in the end lead to death. God, would you help us to see more of this in our own life this week? Would you help us to see and believe more of the beauty of Jesus this week, that we would give ourselves to him? We pray this through Christ. Amen.